0: Hey, everybody, this is Brian here from Attendance Bias, and I'd like to welcome you today to the first episode of Classic Attendance Bias. I'm releasing these episodes on a short weekly basis while I take my break uh, from recording new episodes and just trying to pick out a couple over the past year and a half or so that stood out to me for one reason or another. And today's episode of Classic Attendance Bias is Steve Lacey, who is the lead anchor of Fox 5 News at 5 and 10 in New York City. And I chose this one for a couple of reasons. First off, when I started Attendance Bias, before I even began recording, I made a list of dream guests. And that's just, you know, if I could reach for the stars or just people who I thought might be able to get in touch with me who I would like to have on the show and talk fish with. And Steve Lacey made that list because I grew up in New York city and I was a big fan of Fox five news uh, at 10 o'clock. I never really watched the five o'clock, but you'll hear me talk a little bit more about that as you listen to the episode. And I admired him. I admired him because he's so professional. He does his job. I love watching Fox five news. And when I reached out to him, he immediately responded and said, yes, I was so surprised because I had maybe one episode published at that time. I had nothing to share with him, nothing to explain except the very concept of the podcast. And he must have been super busy as a professional journalist. And he just had a newborn a couple of months prior. So when he got back to me and said, sounds fun, I just I. You know, I remember I almost dropped my phone. I couldn't believe what I was reading, but couldn't let him know that had to move forward with confidence. And so we went back and forth and he chose the show from July 12th, 1999 at Greatwoods, And you'll hear him explain in detail why he chose it in just a minute. The most fun thing that stood out to me about this interview is that when I spoke with Steve, he was just so into it, and his excitement about the show and about fish in general is so genuine, it helped open my eyes to what attendance bias could be, that I could really speak to anyone I wanted, because despite their fame, despite their uh, talents, whatever it is that uh, the guest has going for them, at the end, we're all just fish fans, and on that level, I could connect with just about anybody. And it was so fun, after the show aired, a friend of mine from New England texted me and said, that guy is a real fan. And that's really the ultimate goal. That's what I go for, two fans to talk about fish and their favorite shows. And just as an aside, I never heard this show before Steve brought it up to me, so he really pointed out and opened my ears to a great fish show from July '99. So ladies and gentlemen, enjoy today's classic episode of Attendance Bias, July 12th, 1999 with Steve Lacey of Fox 5 News at 5 and 10 New York City. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest today on Attendance Bias is the anchor of Fox 5 News at 5 and 10 in New York City, Steve Lacey. Steve chose to discuss The Fish Show from July 12, 1999 at Great Woods. He had a number of reasons for this show, the first one being that he grew up in Massachusetts, and this was a hometown show for Steve. You'll hear his background about all the shows he saw at Great Woods growing up. And not only that, but it was the band's first show back at Great Woods after a wild weekend in 1995, so it felt like a homecoming for all involved. And on a personal note, when I was a kid, probably 9 or 10 years old, I got a TV in my room, which was a huge deal in my house, and my curfew was to go to sleep at 10 o'clock, but my parents said that I could stay up until 10.30 if I watched the news before going to sleep, so... It wasn't long before I became a 10-year-old diehard fan of the Fox 5 News at 10 in New York. This is the local city news. It is not to be confused with the Fox News cable channel. So when I found out that the anchor for the Fox 5 News at 10 is also a big Fish fan, I knew that I would love to talk shop with him. I'm also a big Howard Stern fan, and Steve is occasionally name-checked there, very famously when he wrote an essay to rebut Howard's negative response to Fish back in 2015. Steve's essay in response is in the show notes for today's episode. The bottom line is I want everybody to come on to Attendance Bias. I want everyday fans and friends and also well-known names within the community. I mean, in the end, we're all the same. We just want to talk endlessly about fish. And I think that came through in today's discussion of July 12th, 1999 at Great Woods. Enjoy. Steve, welcome to Attendance Bias. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I love nothing more than talking about fish, so thank you for indulging me.
0: Uh, That's the whole reason I'm doing this. I needed (laughs) an outlet. I just needed people who wanted to gab and gab about fish, so you're one of the first people that came to mind, so I really appreciate you being here.
1: My pleasure. Love it.
0: So to start at the beginning, where are you from? Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, I'm from Dighton, Massachusetts, which is a small town uh, in southeastern Mass., it's about twenty five minutes from Great Woods, and it's about twenty five minutes uh, from Gillette Stadium, where the Patriots play.
0: So, growing up in southeastern Massachusetts, New England was kind of fish central.
1: Yeah, right throughout. They went to. Absolutely. They formed in
0: Burlington. Mike is from Massachusetts, I believe.
1: He's from Sudbury, which is a fancy su- suburb of Boston. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: So, growing up what music were you into when you were i'd say maybe 9 10 11 through your teenage years
1: yeah so for me i'm 45 years old now uh so in you know say 1987 i'm 12 years old that's when my musical awakening happened uh things i remember vividly were the walk this way video with aerosmith run dmc that came out in 86 that puts me in sixth grade and then from then, I became just massive into what we would call, you know, 80s rock, hair metal. I know that's sort of a pejorative term for, to some people who are involved in it. But, you know, Aerosmith, Dawkins, Guns N' Roses is absolutely my North Star to this day. Appetite for Destruction completely changed my life. Um, Metallica, any of that sort of MTV rock, Headbangers Ball, Classic Rock, Boston, Any of that stuff that you would have heard on BCN Radio, 94HJY out of Providence, that sort of classic rock genre is completely the foundation for everything that follows.
0: And you mentioned that hair metal nowadays is kind of a pejorative. I think it's been around so long, or that it's been long enough, that now it's coming back around to be cool to be into hair metal. I mean, I think Poison, you know, it's in every bar at a certain hour.
1: It's interesting. I don't view it as a pejorative term at all. You know, I, I listen to Hair Nation all the time on Sirius. I understand the point. Like I've heard, you know, Sebastian Bach, he views it as sort of a pejorative put down of that whole genre because there were bands that were just, you know, basically all glam, mm-hmm. uh, all style, no substance. But I mean like a band like Skid Row, where you could see an early picture of Sebastian Bach with the, the teased out hair. But if you listen to like Slave to the Grind, that's a heavy band. That's real rock. There's nothing soft about that at all. So I do understand it from the artist perspective a little bit how you know they don't love being labeled under that banner. Sure. But to me, it's all good. And and I I I still love that stuff. I don't want to jump the gun on the segue here, but my first concert when I was 13 years old as a kid growing up in Southeast Mass who just watched MTV all the time. My dad somehow knew my my just love of this stuff was so intense. He bought me tickets to Guns N' Roses, opening up for Aerosmith, August wow. 25th, 1988, at Great Woods. We were Section 8. It, it was such a transformational experience in my life, it's hard to even put into words. Um, so we, this was the crew for the show, because I was 13. Me, my dad, Matt Murray, my friend, and Matt Murray's dad. He dragged the dad along to like, so all right, cool, let's, let's take the two. You sit here with me. And it's the coolest thing. It's because my dad wasn't a music fan. I'm not from like a music, you know, family. So there was something he saw, you know, when I bring him all the rock magazines, he just sensed something in my interest of it. And I can still see to this day, the post-it note in his bedroom window where it said buy Aerosmith tickets, Aerosmith spelled incorrectly A R R O W S M I T. I can see that stick, and I remember he got through the tickets were 25 bucks a piece, which at the time seemed like, oh my god, we've got hundred dollar of ticket. The whole thing was unspeakable. And then when we get to the show, you know, it's funny the stuff because I mean, at 13, I mean, I just turned 13. I don't know what partying is. I don't know what a concert is. I don't know what waste it is. And I remember at one point he took me to the men's room and there was a woman in the men's urinals and they dragged her out. (laughs) And I was just like, this is wild. This was a whole new world. You know what I mean? It was just like incredible. And the thing I now realize, which is cool, you don't think your parents maybe are cool or they get it or whatever. But now I realize, like, I mean, he knew what was going on, but I, in some way, I thought like I had to shield him from it or I was going to get in trouble. And of course, that was not the deal at all.
0: Of course, they know.
1: They yeah, know. they know. They know, yeah. right? We always think as kids that we're inventing everything and, you know, and as of course, he, he knew exactly what was going to be going on in the event. And that's why he dragged his adult friend with him too, you know? Right.
0: And he went anyway, and he brought you. How cool is that, though, looking back on it from an adult perspective, right? Now your it, dad?
1: It, you know, my dad's been gone a long time. It honestly, it moves me to tears when I think about it, because for him, this was just the most blown day of his life. He had to drive <laughs> from the cave to Mansfield, Mass, sit in the parking lot, make sure his kid doesn't get, you know, taken under the wing of so It, it you know, There was no joy in that for him, but he did it for me. And it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's the greatest thing you can do for your kid. And it's, it's really one of the best moments of my childhood. It really is.
0: So I looked over on the WNYW website, just for your background and bio, it seems that mm-hmm. as a broadcaster, you've kind of moved all over the place, but mostly all over new England where Absolutely. You're in, in Maine, uh, Bangor, Maine, Springfield, Massachusetts, yep. Boston, and this is all prime fish territory. That was my first
1: thought. Forget about mm-hmm. broadcasting. That was where yep. you know my map was, was going. I was very lucky with my whole, you know, my TV career has worked out better than I could have ever hoped for. I'm so appreciative of it, thankful for it. You know, the biggest thing, you know, when you're in, in a lot of ways, your first TV job is the hardest, because what you're doing is getting someone to, to, agree to give you a job knowing you're not going to add that much value because if you've never been on camera, you've never reported and in these smaller markets too, you're your photographer, you're cutting the video. So really, you're begging someone for a first chance and you you're not bringing that much value to the table. You're learning on the job. So I sent out tapes all over the country and at the time, you know, so this was this was actually right around the time of the show we're gonna talk about. But mm-hmm. I mean I would have moved I would have moved to North Dakota. I would have moved to Rapid City. I would have moved to any of these markets in Texas, anywhere I sent the tape, I was gonna go. And I just happened to get my first job in Bangor, Maine, which was if you live in New England and you want to do the TV thing, Bangor, Maine is the one of the few small markets in new england that you could you know conceivably start at that was the greatest thing on earth you know as someone from boston it was three and a half hours away i could come back on my days off that that was the dream come true and then you've planted your flag in new england so if there's other new england jobs you know they understand that culturally you kind of get the deal so then that opened the door for springfield and then boston was the big jump and then from boston to new york it's Really, it's worked out so much better than I should have ever uh, hoped for.
0: Where does fish come in?
1: Okay, they creep into my. That's a great question. So, you know, we talk about, you know, the transition from being an 80s metalhead, hard rock, all that sort of thing. Then in 1993, I go to school in Boston, I go to BC, and hoist comes out at the end of our freshman year. And, you know, there is a real cultural thing with fish that I went through where, um, when I was in high school, like one of our friends went to UVM and we'd always be like, Oh, are you going to listen to fish, man? Blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it, fish was just like this ridiculous thing in Vermont. That was like this prep school sort of not of my world phenomena. Mm-hmm. So then I went to BC, but then you start getting exposed to kids who did grow up in that world. You know, one of my roommates was from Andover. So the, you know, lawn boy starts coming on, uh, Junta, Junta, whatever you want to call. It. I call it Junta. I, I've now heard that's wrong. I don't care. It's. I'm the name.
0: same exact way. I say Junta because just because I, I spent years yeah. doing it.
1: I, I refuse. I, I'm a real fish fan. That's how I wanted. To, how I want to say it. I'm going to say it that way because I've been saying it for a long time. But I remember the idea of going to that game hen show in '94. I, I feel like I remember being home for a weekend and. Being like, oh, we should go check this out. But I was still hanging out with my high school friends at the time. And they were like, nah, I don't want to do that. And then finally, another year of college. And then it's the sophomore year. Hoist is out. And we just, we, we dive further into fish, dive further into the dead. I remember a lot of working mans. And then June 30th, 95, Great Woods was was my first show so that's sort of full circle too with you know oh wow i saw guns N' roses here i saw a lot of arena rock band i mean i remember seeing like you know vince neal opening up for van halen Aerosmith, just the sort of you know those big summer bill shows yep. that go from venue to venue and then by the time those summer 95 shows came around i was psyched i was ready for it i i couldn't have been more excited And that's where the whole party started.
0: What do you remember from that first show at Great Woods?
1: So I have so many great memories of it. I remember that in those days when there were album sales. And I remember the show was a Friday. They they played Friday, Saturday. I just went to the first one. And that Tuesday was when a live one came out. So I bought a live one at Strawberries in Patriot Square, Dennis Mass. And I listened to it, you know, that whole three days. Mm-hmm. I was already, I, I was into it. It wasn't like that wasn't my introduction, but that was like, yeah. wow, this is this is high caliber, well-recorded, perfect versions of this stuff. And I can remember driving from the Cape to Great Woods, listening to a live one on loop. And I also remember, I'm trying to remember, I think the show we're eventually going to get to, they always, you know how they always change the names of these places. Yeah, But by 99, it was the tweeter <laughs> center. I'm not sure... I'm not sure if it was called Great Woods still in 95, but I still vividly it was. remember. It, it was, was. Great okay. Woods in
0: 95 and you're right. It was the tweeter center by 99.
1: So in 99, I remember then I was coming from Boston and I remember driving up and you come to the exit and the tweeter center sign, someone put a piece of paper over the T and it became a tweezer center. And I was just like, Perfect. I, I just, I love it so much. It's so great. It's so I- great.
0: It's like going down to Maryland, and all of a sudden you're on the way to Jerry Weather Post Pavilion
1: now. <laughs> I've never heard that. I love that.
0: So the show that you picked for today, July twelfth, nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Why exactly did you choose this
1: one? You know, for me, I've grown into appreciating type two jamming and that sort of thing, but at my core. I'm all about energy. And certainly when I was 23 years old, I wanted to just up, punch in the face, bam, rock, 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 tray, shred. (laughs) And this was a show that really just delivered on what I wanted from Fish at that time. And I also think, you know, I think 97's almost become like, this error that's blotted out the sun as far as in fish criticism, fish appreciation, whatever you want to sure. call it, where there's so much awesome stuff that happened around 97. Like I I'm obsessed with 98. I love 99 because there's maybe it's a little more concise and, and I'm good with that. You know what I mean? I, I mean, this is, this is, I'm about to say an illegal thing, but when I was seeing fish in 97, I remember not being obsessed with the stuff that people's, are obsessed with now. And maybe even I'm more obsessed with now than I was then. I didn't want this endless jamming. I wanted song oriented energy, party rock fun. And that's what 99 brought to me.
0: You know, you're not alone in that because I agree with you that 97 is kind of held up as this all encompassing <laughs> greatest year ever. And then it's a race for second place when you talk about that. But yep. I remember, cause I started seeing them in 1997 and I saw more shows in 98 and I remember talking to people who said they were bored in 1997 because yep. the jams just went on indefinitely and they were repetitive. I mean, yep. now when you listen back, there's still that unbelievable fire and there's a reason I think that it's thought of in the way that it is. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you, how uh, you called it like a spotting out the sun that yep. there's room for discussion for more.
1: Totally. Absolutely right. And like, you know, you're not going to want to dip your toe if you're unsure of your fish, you know, uh, opinions or whatever, you're not going to want to make that argument online because you'll get flamed immediately. Sure. And, and, I, and my appreciation of 97 has come around. But at the time, it was it, you know, I, I want to just bang, 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 more energy, you know?
0: So they played a mm-hmm. big summer tour in 99. It took up almost all of July. It was punctuated by three shows and only three shows at the Naiba Ski Resort. In niigata Japan. I never heard those shows. I never even heard of those shows.
1: And that's different than the Fukuoku 2000 Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. I've never yeah. I have no idea of that. Yeah. Wow, so, I didn't know that.
0: There's that. And some highlights of ninety nine just the summer were the July fourth show at Lakewood Amphitheater, a lot of people hold in very
1: high esteem. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh the chalkdust torture from Camden, which was the show before today's that's July oh, 10th. That, that Chalk Dust.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, They played a five song second set in Holmdale a few days after the show we're talking about today. Of course, Camp Mm -hmm. Oswego later in the summer. And the announcement at Polaris Amphitheater is when they announced Big Cypress. That was in the summer they announced it.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. At a show.
0: Because what happened was at Oswego, which was in the middle of the summer tour, unusually, the festivals are always at the end. This was in the middle. Uh, they tried to do the world record for most people doing a group dance to do the meat stick (laughs) right and they didn't get it they didn't get the record so a couple days later Trey said that they're gonna try it again at the big new year's festival in Florida and that's how everyone found out. World Records. We had the Macarena at 50,000 people. We just played a show in Oswego some of you are probably there. We, we, we attempted to break the world record for the most number of people doing the same dance at one time. That, that being the meat stick, which we're doing here. We had about 54,000 people doing the meat stick at the same time. The bad news is that unfortunately I found out that in the 1999 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records there's a dance called The Chicken that was done by 74,000 people. So we are now in second place for the world record for the most people ever. But the good news is that uh, sometime soon, maybe on New Year's Eve, we're playing on New Year's Eve in Florida if you guys all know. and And one more thing i wanted to ask you about 99 before we get specifically into this show Mm -hmm. during my first few interviews of this Mm -hmm. podcast when i was just getting my friends involved out of 10 episodes or interviews that i've recorded so far three people have chosen summer 99 shows
1: oh interesting yeah which is interesting it is interesting i I feel like um, you know, I consume a ton of fish content. That's basically my whole Twitter feed. Like I, I have a bottomless appetite for this sort of stuff. And I do feel like along the lines of 1997 blotting out everything in its path, 99 has maybe been underappreciated. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a ripe area for further exploration for sure.
0: So let's get into set one of this mm-hmm. show. When I first looked at the set list, because I hadn't heard this show before, and I saw that it opens with Boston's foreplay in long time, I thought that it was their acoustic version that they used to play in 94. They played a whole bunch of them. And when they opened it and I heard Paige's organ play the real intro, and I just said, what an opener. It was so fast and They nailed it when they did it acoustic, but the vibe back then, it was almost like a goof where they were taking this fun, complex song and playing it acoustic as a joke with a banjo and stuff. But this is real. like This is very earnest, the way they opened it here.
1: they're almost taking the piss out of classic rock right with right. this they're just rocking oh, like i put it this way i i actually listened to the show again yesterday in preparation for this podcast <laughs> the chills i got remembering that moment you know i've always been like we all my my whole friend crew we've always been like what do you think they're gotta open with what do you think you know and i feel like that was that would be like a type of song like i feel like i may have called that in the parking lot now that may be completely bs but that would be exactly what i would be going for because you're you're dealing with the mythology now the thing is these july 99 shows they hadn't played at great woods in four years right because when they played my first batch of shows friday and saturday the whole place got overrun and mansfield was like no more fish yep certainly no more weekends so then the the deal they eventually struck four years later as they jerry died after the 95 shows and they didn't come back to great woods to 99 that shows you sort of the local trauma of the previous run of fish shows. And they're like, no. So then finally they were allowed to come back, but on Monday, Tuesday in an attempt to sort of have less people showing up without tickets. So then you've got that whole mythology. Oh my God, it's been such a long time. They haven't played great woods at that point. I would say, I wouldn't argue it anymore, but I think at that moment in time to great woods was their home venue. That was like their Madison square garden. Sure. So they opened that show. And I, like, when I was listening to this in my basement yesterday, I realized not only is that as happy as I could be at a fish show, that moment is as happy as I'm capable of being in life, period. The chills I got from replaying that and the roar as the crowd realizes what's going on, and then just building up to Trey shredding that solo, it's unbelievable. In the whole level of, however many decades later, that you know the whole Boston thing becomes a basis for the Baker's Dozen. Right. So right. then you then you see Night Twelve of the Baker's Dozen, and if you were at that show, it, there's this full circle element that's incredible. And, you right. know, and it's like you could even go further because what's Boston? A guitar-based band by a genius who went to MIT. So it's like Tom shots and Trey to me are just cut of such the same cloth. I could I could watch either of them play anything forever.
0: And you probably have that sort of thing in common where he's spoken in the past about how he was like any other kid growing up in suburban New Jersey listening to whatever mm-hmm. rock music was on at the mall. And I'm mm-hmm. sure, cause this was one of Boston's biggest hits that when he was up there you could hear it in his voice on the recording, he's just rocking out. This is a dream of his, I'm sure to just scream those lyrics and fishes, God love them, not known for their power vocals, but, (laughs) but he nails this. He really, it's really impressive how he, he wraps his whole self around this. The whole band does for that matter.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting too. I'm just realizing this now because in that you reference bittersweet motel when he's like, so like, you know, I grew up listening to this. And he sort of throws it off with a little bit of disdain. He's like, I mean, I grew up listening to Boston. Like, you know, like he was sort of embarrassed of it. And there's this thing they do where they almost have to like, at first they ironically embrace their influences from a distance. They don't want to really fully get too emotionally invested in like trying to do the exact cover. But then over time they get more comfortable. It's almost like the same thing with the dead where like they started with it, then they ran away from it, and then they finally felt safe to embrace it. So I think this is the moment where they're like, no, no, no. We're just going to play the first of two sold out shows of Great Woods and we are going to rock out two play long time, straight up album version. And I didn't realize until we were about to talk. See, that was my experience. I didn't realize that this was the only time they've done that. Yeah. You know, so like I would see the play long time maybe on cassettes or, it's, you know, whatever early fish material I could grab in this pre-internet world and not realize that they weren't full rock that it yeah, was it's a bluegrass
0: banjo version it's, right. it's almost Which, a joke well this is the real deal they slay it mm-hmm. and then right after that is down with disease and i wrote down that this is the kind of show where the second song goes for almost 20 minutes and mm-hmm. we don't really get that anymore and 1999 was a good year for long jams but we didn't always get them so upfront and so early in the set and this is a fan favorite right 1000 barefoot children mm-hmm. dancing on my lawn And I loved it. This was a really patient version. I mean, you guys must've been going out of your mind after that opener. And then to get slayed with this is just,
1: no, totally up. Yep. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I mean, down with disease. I mean, I I love that as much as I love any fish. I think, you know, a lot of times when people are like, Oh, what, uh, what, what would you suggest I listen to, to get into fish? I say down with disease album version, because I think Mm -hmm. all the elements of what you love about fish are there in a succinct, compact way. So, for me, disease is always welcome. And it was, you had that massive, I mean like, where do you go from foreplay long time in Boston? And then to go there, I'm like, oh, all right. Like it's 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 really full on. We're not gonna take a step back. We're not gonna take a breather. Let's just keep blasting away. I mean, that that's ecstasy. I love it, I live for that.
0: And what I noticed about this jam and it's kind of became a theme throughout the whole show, Because of this podcast, I've listened to more Summer 99 than I pretty much ever had before. It's everyone's favorite. Mm -hmm. And especially I'm thinking of the Meriwether Post Show, which I think was about three days before this one, and Oswego later in the summer. A lot of 1999 jams go at like 1,000 miles per hour. And they're kind of schizophrenic where they have this amazing... Sound this amazing jam and then all of a sudden it's like someone flips a switch and they're in a completely different song There's no sequence Mm -hmm. to it, but down with disease From like 11 minutes Mike really patiently leads a rhythm and the band catches on and then a little bit later Trey gets a little more abstract, but everyone hangs on to it. It really has patience They really sound like full band jamming as opposed to Okay, let's try a and now B and then it really Mm -hmm. holds together. It's really impressive.
1: on top of that they close yeah. it they
0: finish the song which almost never happens in that year
1: oh i didn't even realize that interesting <laughs> Yep.
0: and then after that down with disease comes their favorite new toy at the time back on the train which was new it was only the fifth time they played it
1: right now so that see what's interesting there is you know so farmhouse didn't come out until june of 2000 so i'm trying to think what my uh, impression would have been, but, I and, and I and I truly don't remember, but I'm just thinking I w- would have been loving it. I love, I love, I love Bot. And I also think they built such equity with those first two songs that even if that's a song I probably wasn't super familiar with, like I- I- I'm going with it. Like I'm psyched. Sure. You've earned my trust with this show. Let's like, great. Whatever you want to do here. And then, I mean, I, I mean, I love Bot. The only issue back then would have been not being super familiar with it. But I, you know, I was just full on board with wherever they were taking it. So I, I, my impression is I probably loved that, you know?
0: And if you weren't familiar with it yet, by the end of the tour, you would have been because out of 26 shows on the tour, they played this 10 times.
1: Isn't that fascinating? That's a high, that's that's a high percentage. Yeah, that, that is i always you know i find it very interesting songs that are in the live rotation before they're on the album like when you find like you know a touch of gray from like an 82 dead bootleg or something yeah i find that super satisfying because i mean for you know touch of gray that was my entry point into the dead in 87 like everybody i mean it was on mtv like oh this is the grateful dead i know they're the symphony band from the Mm -hmm. 60s and it's it's kind of cool to know like There was nothing selling out about that. That was just a succinct, well-done version of a song that they have been working out for years. Like, I think that's really cool, you know?
0: Yeah, it is. And I, I first heard it that fall. I didn't get to see any of the Summer 99 shows. So I was seeing all these song titles, not knowing what they sounded like, including the next song, which is What's the Use?
1: Now, uh, this is what I'll say about that. Then mm-hmm. this will touch upon what we were talking about, 97, not being obsessed with jams. I remember, I, I, my guess would be I was not into What's the Use at that moment. What's the Use is now one of my favorite songs uh, as my sort of ability and appreciation of longer form. Now, now that riff kills me. Like, it's so dark and heavy. Uh, but you know, actually, I saw a great tweet about it. It was the guy uh, Amir Brahman Noodles who does the guitar. You know, he's like this amazing guitarist. He posts flicks mm-hmm. and everything. He's like, he described as something. He he posted an acoustic version of it. And it was like it's you know dark, depressing, but ultimately hopeful. And I'm like, oh my god, that's so brilliant. And that that emotion that comes in that it's like three notes. It's like, wah, 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 wah. yeah. <laughs> I could I could live in that now. Back then, I'm sure you know what I would actually I'd bet you anything that was a piss break song for me back then. Probably there wasn't much in, of a go. response from you the know? crowd, and it's almost
0: nine minutes long.
1: I would bet you a lot of money. I, I went to the bathroom during that song.
0: And I'm sure there was a line for it too at that time. And then next is split <laughs> yeah, open. Totally. And next was split open and melt, which is, you know, a crowd favorite. And it's weird. I was listening to this again today, um, on a walk, and the the jam that begins. To me and this is like time traveling in my own head it reminded me of golden age even though they wouldn't play that for another 10 years you know that debuted in 2009 but trey is doing this really cool guitar picking melody or rhythm that sounds a lot like golden age but it it's completely you know 10 years before and he's very minimal Mike really steps forward for this one and it gets kind of floaty. And I don't know, I expected split open and Mel to kind of move away from any structure, but Fishman holds Mm -hmm. it tight and page holds it tight while Mike and Trey kind of go off, which is unusual. And there's,
1: there's a lot of Mike in this show. Like when I was listening back to it, like really like creating sort of the interesting ballast for Trey to play off. Like, I feel like, like he's high up in the mix and it's it's like a very active mic, you know, like and I like that.
0: I wrote down in my notes, it sounds like it should be the end of the set, but it's only been about an hour in or less yeah. or less. You know, it feels very big, this split opening yeah. now. It's very dynamic. Yeah,
1: right, sure. That's a statement piece, right? Yeah.
0: And then they play Water in the Sky, which is nice and playful as usual. And then you think about it looking back, this is a song that in a few months would be one of the more legendary set openers of all time at Big Cypress with the filter out the Everglades line. This opened the whole festival.
1: Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. You know what? I, I got to say, to this day, Big Cypress is my biggest fish regret. And, I, you know, my other buddy who I've been to, you know, I was on my, I've been to all my shows with my buddy Brian, and he didn't go either. You know, the, the, the interesting thing, this could be a whole podcast, <laughs> is the idea of, like, time versus money when I was younger and I didn't have any particular career or whatever, you know, I was living so hand to mouth and I was never the guy, like I, I, I talked to Mike Fenoy about this all the time. He was the guy who would go on tour and sell cigarettes and do the whole thing and make grilled cheese. Like anytime I tried any of that foolishness, I was just a complete failure at it. <laughs> yeah. You know? So it was yeah. like, I would hit my two shows that were closed. I would take the day off from whatever, you know, crappy job I had. And then that was it. Like, I never did tour. I see more shows now, in a sense, because, Same. you know, it's like I, I've got a job and I can pay for it. And I need I that did-
0: security. Yeah.
1: No, totally. And I just, I prioritize it in my life. I saw 11 shows last year because I knew I was going to have a kid. So it was just sort of like the whole mantra of that year was like, I'm gonna see as much fish as I can because next year I'm not going to be able to. And yeah. God knows how prescient that was in ways we never could have anticipated. <laughs> right. right Fingers then, crossed. Know? Yeah. yeah. Ho- hopefully
0: your child isn't too old by the time you get to get back in that oh into my God.
1: it. I know yeah, I we're know. dying here But uh,
0: to close it though, is character zero old reliable, right? Mm-hmm. The, and, job there's a really big type one jam. I was when I listened to it the first time and I'm focused on jotting down my thoughts and preparation for this. I always listen to these shows at least a second time, just freewheeling, just walking around mm-hmm. doing nothing. And this character zero really got my attention today.
1: But you know My recollection is just, it was just a, a summer crowd. Everyone was younger. I mean, I, cause I feel like I I've always felt like, you know, like right now I'm at 45. I feel like that's a pretty, um, representative Fish fan, you know, there's people younger than me, there's people older than me, and there's a lot of people my age. So this was a show when you were 23, like people were just there to party. This was, you know, New England, this was summer. It was the All-Star Game weekend, that was the thing too. So in Boston, the second show, I know people who didn't go to the second show because they stayed and were sort of, you know, involved in the All-Star Game thing. So the whole weekend just had a big feel to it. It was like Boston was the center of America that weekend. So the character Zero, like, that's just good. Let's just fun, upbeat, rock, close, or bang. Let's go into a separate, hot, you know, and then and see what's up.
0: To start set two, they open with twist. And my first thought listening to it was, oh, it's the old school opening where it's just the, the three guitar chords and the band singing over no full instrumentation. I kind of missed that. I almost forgot about it. When you re-listened, did you notice that?
1: You know what? I didn't really listen to that. And I totally oh, forgot okay. about that. <laughs> 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 um, I think a thunder- yesterday a thunderstorm happened and my dog started freaking out. I it, it, See, that, and that's what I love about Fish, though. Like, I, if you want to learn about it, you could spend the rest of your life studying about it. And you won't even scratch the surface. Like, I was there and I don't even know that that was some alternative to a version of a song I see now. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so vast. You can't even... God, you can you can think about it forever, you know.
0: Time is a flat circle in case you forgot.
1: University of donut, bro. That's right.
0: And and this twist is on the fish.net jam charts. It is very good. It it reminds me a little bit of later, and we'll get there in just a little bit of time, to the David Bowie that comes later in the set. In that, Mm -hmm. and also, I guess, split open and melt that I'm thinking about it out loud now they kind of it was almost a thing where two band members stayed steady and then two other band members would like look for the exit Mm
1: -hmm. you know like
0: so they were pretty focused but also still the fish we all know and love looking to improvise and jam and there's this section toward the middle it's about eight minutes to ten minutes where it peps up and holy crap like you are listening to you know the symphony of the gods for two minutes. Then it gets really funny because they don't know how to end it yet.
1: Right, <laughs> like it just kind right. of peters out. There was, you know, there was that was. See, that was the fun thing about back then was. Now they're coming from a sober headspace. There's less shows. So We chose more precious. So many of them are at Madison Square Garden. So they, you know, they they really go the extra mile for that. Back then, it's like they were still just almost like precocious genius students, you know, plunging headlong into the abyss without a real exit plan for a lot of that stuff. And sometimes it would just sort of dissolve. But who cares? like, we're on to the next. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And that kind of fits what we know about Trey's personality. Also, he's always right on the edge. You know, we call it Trey DHD. Like he's always (laughs) thinking a little bit ahead to the point where it's like, all right, we got to end it. How do we do it? And by the time they get there, you almost don't care because of what came before it.
1: No, totally. And, you know, the thing, like, uh, just is to a little, take a little detour here for a second, you know, my, I think one you know, one of my favorite songs is, like, First Tube to me is, like, is like on the Mount Rushmore of Fish. And I realized what I like about it now is I think, in my mind, you know, who knows, this is a bunch of nonsense, a fish man is thinking of himself. That's what like, this
0: podcast I, is for. This is all <laughs> a bunch
1: of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. Like, can you imagine someone who doesn't know what we're talking about listening to? Yeah, this, right. Like, insane. But why I love First Tube is I feel like, you know, with sobriety. I I feel like Trey feels there might be a conflict between the ego necessary to be a guitar God and being sober. And I think like First Tube is the one place where he allows that side of him, which which he views as something that's got him in trouble in the past. He says, you know what, I'm gonna storm around the stage. I'm gonna rant and rave. I'm gonna rock out. I'm gonna throw the guitar in the air at the end of the song. Now, like that's his like cheat day, you know, that's when he gets (laughs) to have dessert or something. And that's what I love about it, because it used to be all that, you know what I mean, for the most part, and sort of watching that him learn how to control that. But that's why I just that's a sidebar that I always love first tube, because that's when he's saying, you know what, I get to be egomaniac rock guitarist in this song, and I love it.
0: And maybe that's why he closes so many shows. So that's the last thing he gets to do before they walk off stage.
1: Right, and he's home, home three the, minutes later in his apartment. It's crazy. I yeah, don't know how right? he goes down that yeah. fast from these shows.
0: So after Twist kind of peters out, there's a good back and forth. There's Momendance and Makasupa Policeman.
1: Mm-hmm, and
0: yeah. Dance is slower than usual. I thought they played slow in 3.0. If you listen to this one, it's like half speed. And it benefits the song. It's a good thing for MoMA dance.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love MoMA. You know what, I, I'm asking this. Like, so what MoMA was black-eyed Katie at some point, like I Correct. don't know when, did it, beco- when did it when did it switch? I don't even know.
0: I know that around the New Year's run '97, they played it as black Eyed Katie, because I know it was played on December 30th of that year, And I know that it was okay. recorded as the MoMA dance on the Story of the Ghost," which came out right. in 1998. Yeah, so, that, that, yep. It's got to. So, this is
1: like early into being MoMA, first couple of years or whatever. Yeah, yeah. this
0: has got to be one of the first performances of it as the MoMA dance and not Black Eyed Katie, I'm guessing.
1: Yep. Well, you know, for those two, so we're talking about MoMA and Makasupa. I, I love MoMA unabashedly. That's awesome. Makasupa, I'm not like super into. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I know, I know from your notes here, you know, there were some interesting things where he's what he referenced what's the reference and all that sort of stuff
0: the the key word for this one is stink kind and mm-hmm. i guess that's weed um i would have known when i was 23 but <laughs> i now it's just oh that's cute uh but it's weird because normally Makasupa is like a joke song. I know that they used to play it sometimes when security was being a little over aggressive at a venue. Oh, These days okay. they probably don't even hear word of that. But I know they used to play it then. But this version is six minutes long, and I usually consider Makasupa some kind of joke. You know, it's yeah, kind of like just I, a tossed aside yeah. thing.
1: Makasupa is not going to go anywhere. You don't know it's going to go, so it's just sort of it's a rote song. I yeah, I don't love it. Yeah. is a
0: little nice jam around four minutes into this it's not long it's not it doesn't take you any you know to any other world but it does make it a little atypical for a makasupo yep. policeman so if you do end up listening to this second set again don't skip yep. over Makisupa.
1: interesting because i because i definitely would so that's good to know yeah don't give it a shot
0: and then after that though is the big centerpiece of the set is david bowie which is 21 minutes Mm -hmm. long i
1: i still remember that intro so well yeah tell me about it so i was in the pavilion which i never was back then like i don't i don't know how we got these i don't know i truly have no idea how i got them i I was always in the lawn at that phase of my life but we were down low and i remember someone coming doing the you know the symbol intro and i you know, the stories get scrambled over time, but like either my friend was ironically yelling Maze or someone next to us was being like, it's Maze, it's Maze, Maze. So it really was like before the whole Maze Bowie thing became sure. like such a joke, you purposely yell out the wrong song. I remember someone earnestly yelling out the wrong song. I can remember it clear as day. And I also remember being ecstatic at the Bowie because... Then probably maybe even more than now, like I loved Bowie back then. That was when I would hack around on a guitar. And I think I'd been like, you know, I had that riff, I had learned it. I was just, I was very into Bowie at that moment in time. So that Bowie was just so welcome.
0: And this is a good one to get into you know if there were a time for you to be into David Bowie this is a great one for you to uh to witness it's again there's two band members it's Paige and Trey who keep kind of switching back and forth for brief periods while Mike and Fish hold it together it's very similar to Twist early in the show in that it dips its toes into a lot of jams but doesn't Mm -hmm. really jump off into any of them but it kind of works because they're able to keep that vibe going for so long And of course, back in 1999, the composed section is flawless. So it's a really,
1: it's a treat for the ears. Because they're playing 200 shows a year. I mean, they just toured so much back then, right?
0: And then to wrap up the set, there's two animal songs. There's the Lizards and then Gaiute.
1: I don't think I realized at the time that now Lizards is maybe more of a rarity or something. Like Lizards was just like a good rock and fish song, but like, there was this reverence in the room around it that I didn't fully appreciate, like that it had become less common over time. Yeah.
0: I don't have the stats on hand, but lizards is definitely, you know, to use quotes, a special song, you know, it right. is, it's like a it big is treat an now if you
1: get it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah. And so I wrote always a crowd Favorite," and you could hear it on this recording. There's a great cheer when they started playing it right after Bowie, it was played four times in that year in 1999. Mm-hmm. So that's, I don't know if that's good or bad or common or uncommon compared to other years, but it's, that it was does. probably uncommon
1: for like that. That was not played a lot for back then. Yeah. Maybe like, I bet if you went in 95, you would see a lizard like every other show or every third show or something. And then guy, I, I mean, I love Guy Ute because again, to me, this is a very like Mike forward show where like, that you know the peak of guy it it it's just so filthy and dirty and it's like the build up it just it's you know and the bass is like the lead guitar and then it explodes and it's like that was everything i wanted out of life at that moment you know what i mean to me that's just such an unbelievable set closer that, was... that build up and release is everything I, it drives me nuts. I just love it so much. I, I Like it hurts to love something so much, honestly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the encore was a pretty straightforward, short and sweet rock and roll uh, where Paige nails the vocals and he almost shows off a little bit where today he's a bit more measured with his singing and a little yep. more, I don't know, I don't know if saying more intelligent with it, but more pre-planned. You can hear him. He changes his vocals a little bit. He was really pushing it because it was only... A little less than a year since they debuted it, since Halloween '98, uh, there was a quick guitar solo toward the end, and you know what a way to to close it. Walking out of this show with one another must have been exhilarating. You must have felt like a million. The bucks. great
1: and the great. You know what? You know, fish. It's always like, oh my god, we get to do it again tomorrow. As long as you've got to do it again tomorrow, you're on top of the world. I mean, I remember that. I remember walking out of there, and to me, rock rock and roll is i love it so much it's the perfect second set opener like when we'd always bet on songs what they got like i would always call rock and roll set to opener and there was a while there where like you know i'd win that bet but then it's (laughs) like i think you know it's impossible now to sort of call i'm almost out of the game of like what are they going to open with because now you know like behind between me and my mind or whatever You know he's got we've got a list of 300 songs we're playing with it's like they're and they're not trying to do a show that you could call anymore you know if i'm trying to call a show that was my peak from 99 or something you're not going to get that show and that's what keeps them relevant but i love rock and roll so much because again then it just it, it forces concision on them like they just all really put it into this tight package to end it off on and then you're like oh my god let's do it again tomorrow fantastic Well,
0: Steve, uh, to quote a favorite, Howard Stern, we've said it all.
1: (laughs) Uh, Maybe too much.
0: Anything we didn't say, anything you wanted to say about fish? about the show, anything you want to plug that we didn't get to?
1: Um, No, I feel good. Like, I worked up a sweat, man. I'm I'm all all (laughs) hot and bothered after that conversation. It's it's just so good to go into it at at such detail with someone. You know, I truly like talking about this stuff with a knowledgeable fan is one of my favorite things on earth because you're always learning stuff. I mean, again, look how many things about a show I was at that I not even know about. <laughs> and I, and I thought I knew, you know, you think, you know, everything it's like, you know, there's so much never more. Know so I, I, never know anything. I everything. can't get enough of it. And I, and I do want to, you know, it, it was great doing your podcast because, you know, you sent me the detailed show notes I'm like, wow, this is going to be interesting. And then I, I listened to some of the episodes and they were all great. Thank and it's you. like, you know, this passion, no, you should be really proud of it. Uh, you know, the passion of all the fans comes through because I I listened to the you know the the, the woman from Female Centrics, I listen I listened to the Elisa Alashant because I you know I heard her name on fish radio and wanted to see what she's about. And it's like, you know, there's so many fish friends I have that like I don't even know what they do for a living. It's just like how many shows have you been to? What shows are you going to? That singular passion in this world is such a break from everything outside of it. That's like the magic of all of it. It's the community. It's everyone just being so involved in this one wacky band that, by no rational measure, like the idea <laughs> that they would have ever gone from nectars to 13 nights, 17 nights in 2017 at, at, yeah. at Madison Square Garden, like it's inconceivable. And it's like the idea that something inconceivable but positive can come to pass in this world we live in to me is so inspiring. You know, it's like the longest of long shots. And by not in any way chasing, commercial success that they got more than 99.9 percent of bands could ever hope for that to me is the most inspiring thing on earth i love it. it it gives me endless energy creativity inspiration it's just you know i just feel like we all owe so much to them it's just it, it's so powerful it's, it's the greatest part of my life i love it you know
0: and that's a perfect note to end on Thank you, Steve Lacey. Thank you so much for taking the time out for being here. I appreciate it so much.
1: My pleasure. Let's talk three more hours on the phone after this. We'll do. <laughs> we'll do. <laughs> Take care, man.
0: Well, Steve and I did not talk for another three hours on the phone after the interview ended, but it certainly felt like we could. It was such a great discussion, and I feel like we could have gone on forever, or there could have been two or three more podcasts. Within our discussion. But unfortunately, we just didn't have the time or the infrastructure to get that done. Instead, let's fact check some of the more uncertain parts of our conversation. First off, Steve's first show, which he mentioned was at Great Woods on June 30th, 1995, was a quintessential 1995 show, which may personally be my favorite year of fish. That show featured Trey playing guitar with his teeth during Scent of a Mule. There was a Dave's Energy Guide tease during Possum, and a Mike's into Contact into Weekapog, and finally, an Antelope with alternate lyrics that said, Suck the deer shit from the side of this hole. And he was 100% correct that the shows were on a Friday and a Saturday. There was also some discussion about the name of the amphitheater in 1995 to 1999. In 1995, it was still called Great Woods, but in 1999, it had been renamed the Tweeter Center. But as any fan will tell you, it's always been and always will be Great Woods. I spent some time talking about the summer tour, and I mentioned that the band played three standalone shows in Niigata, Japan, at the end of the 1999 tour. After I looked a little deeper into it, these shows were part of the Fuji Rock Festival, and once I found that out, I realized that Yes, I have heard of those shows. Even better, all three shows are available on fish.in as soundboard recordings. The show at the Polaris Amphitheater, where Trey announces the Big Cypress Festival, was played on July 23, 1999, if you want to check that out. It was also recently released as an official live fish recording. I mentioned Fish's acoustic version of Boston's foreplay long time. They played that acoustic version nine times from October to December in 1994. It's not too different in tone from their acapella version in Freebird, in my opinion. It's impressive, but it's still a kind of goofy way to play an epic rock classic. If you haven't heard it before, check it out when you get a chance. Steve mentioned that this show was played during over the all-star weekend in 1999. It turns out that the American league won over the national league that year by a score of four to one. And of course, wouldn't you know it? The MVP was Pedro Martinez who became the first pitcher to begin an all-star game by striking out the side and striking out five out of six batters he faced. We also spoke a bit about the debut of the MoMA Dance as it was transformed from Black-Eyed Katie. Neither of us could nail down exactly when that happened and it turns out that the final performance of Black-Eyed Katie was on December 30th, 1997 at Madison Square Garden and the MoMA Dance premiered on June 30th, 1998 at the Grey Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark. So I was right about December 30th but wrong about this show being one of the first performances of the Moma dance. And that is it for today on attendance bias. I'd like to extend my thanks to Steve Lacey for taking the time to talk fish. And if you're in the New York city area, Steve can be seen on the Fox five news at five and 10 PM. If you like attendance bias, please support the show by subscribing rating and reviewing it wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, everybody. And I'll see you next time.